you know, if the person couldn't make it. So here, so we're going to see five points, okay, from this passage in Exodus, um, Exodus 6, 13 to 15, just for our family. Um, as we look at God's, um, as we think about God and family, I think what we see in this passage is like five motivation for us to obey God even when it's difficult, okay? So these are the five points. The first one, all of them again, like I said, is going to be be motivated to obey God, you know, and dot, 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 okay? The first one is be, point number one, um, be motivated to obey God because God works through quirky family. That's verse 21, okay? Um, point number two is be motivated to obey God from past family members remembrance of God. Okay, I know that's kind of um, a lot of wordplay there. Uh, point number two is be motivated to obey God from past family members remembrance of God. Okay, I see this based upon verse 15, verse 20, and then 22 to 23. Again, let me say the anchor support for this second point is verse 15, verse 20, and then verses 22 to 23. Okay, so point number two is be motivated to obey God from past family members' remembrance of God, okay? So the third motivation to obey God is this. Be motivated to obey God with family's privilege to serve God. With family's privilege to serve God. This is how I see in verses 16 to 19, okay? Sometimes we could forget it's actually a privilege to serve God. Sometimes we could even have a wrong, bad attitude. But then I think we see in verse 16 and 19 with the genealogy, reminded third motivation is be motivated to obey God with the family's privilege to serve God. With family's privilege to serve God. This is based upon verse 16 and 19. That's point number three. Okay. Let me repeat this again. Be motivated to obey God with the family's privilege to serve God. In verse 16 and 19. Okay. And then point number four. Um, point number four. Be motivated to obey God with warning of family's members who rebelled against God. Okay. With warning of family members who rebelled against God. Let me say this again. Point number four. Be motivated to obey God with warning of family members who rebelled against God. Okay? I see this. Um, I'm going to scatter this. If you might say why it's not order, it's because it's the order of the verse I'm looking at. Verse 21, verse 24, 23, and 20. Okay, let me say this verse again. Verse 21, verse 24. Verses 23 and 20, okay? Um, there's a reason why it's all mixed up. Is I'm looking at each individual um, at that or at that or with that kind of order, okay? Again, point number four, be motivated to obey God with warning of family members who rebelled against God. And then uh, with point number five, be motivated to obey God from the zeal for God from other family members. Be motivated to obey God from the zeal for God from other family members. This is based upon verses 25, okay? Be motivated to obey God from the zeal for God from other family members. This is based upon verse 25, okay? So these are the five points. I know they're kind of wordy, um, but I actually think um, even as we do this, even as we excavate through the genealogy and we see how this could motivate us to obey God, I hope we could also perhaps look even at our own family history and I know even when we go through, some of us might say, Jimmy, I'm the first generation Christian in my line. But I also think some of these things as we look at, even as we look later, some of these genealogy does not stop with Moses. It goes into the next future generations. So some of these things are things why we motivate, hopefully that God could work through us 
to impact the next generation, okay? So even when we go through these five points, some of you say, yeah, Jimmy, I see God working through my quirky family. That's true past and present. But some of these things you might say, Jimmy, like, I don't have no family that has remembrance of God. Some of these things are motivation to serve God, um, to serve God so that Lord willing, if, if God wills it by His grace, this could also be the future. Does that make sense with these five points? This is not just only past looking, but it's also present and it's also forward looking. So, so if some of these things does not apply yet or is true in your family history, you don't have to make it up. You just say, okay, this is one of the reasons to obey God. Perhaps God could continue work, even in the future for this to be true. Okay? So in light of this, let's look at this context a little bit more. Because it is very strange. You might say, Jimmy, it's so strange to read a genealogy in the middle of a story with Exodus, right? Okay? In fact, I, I would actually say before Exodus 6, 13 is 27, before we read this passage of this genealogy, it's already might be, some of you guys might say, it's strange enough to say, I should obey God because of genealogy. And I think those are the motivation we do see from this. But I think it's even more strange, at least for me, when I first read this passage, to say, why would a genealogy be stuck by Moses in the middle of what I think is one of the most discouraging two chapters in Exodus? Because if you read Exodus 5 and 6, just for the set up the context before we go to point 1, 2, 3, and 4, and 5, right? In the context, if you look with me, in Exodus chapter 5 earlier, just to set up what's going on is, Moses, remember, like he did not want it to go sent by God. Remember, God appeared to him in that burning bush. And in, in, in the context, he's asking all these questions. And eventually, really the question why he asks is, I actually think he doesn't want to go to become this man that frees uh, Egypt. That's different. The 80-year-old Moses is very different than the 40-year-old Moses. The 40-year-old Moses is confident on his own self-reliance. But the 80-year-old Moses is like, man, who am I? I'm old and, you know, my time has passed. All these things, okay? But God still sends him anyway just to make the point that it's not relying on us, but it's relying on God for when we serve God, okay? Now, in Exodus 5, God sends Moses. And Moses go in Exodus 5.1. Notice he told Pharaoh to let Israel go. Now, did Pharaoh let Israel go just like that when he first asked? What do you guys think? No, right? If you guys ever seen any movies about Exodus, right? You know he did not. And of course, there's going to be 10 plagues that follows. Okay? So Pharaoh instead, in verses 6 to 9, he gets pretty upset. He orders the Hebrews to work harder with them being, what? Deprived of having any straws in the making of brick. Okay? So that's Exodus 5, verses 6 to 9. And actually, like I said earlier, if you know this context, this actually, I think, makes us appreciate this passage more because Exodus 5 and 6 is in a moment where in Israel's history, the Hebrews are very discouraged and Moses himself is very discouraged because it seems like God has sent them on a mission. And why is things not going to plan? Everything is backfiring, okay? It backfires so badly. Um, humanly speaking, if you look with me in verses 19 to 21, just again, we're just scanning this real quick. You see the leaders of the sons of Israel, right? Those people that were like help, uh, leading the slaves, they went to talk to Moses, uh, correction, Pharaoh, and they thought maybe perhaps Pharaoh is not really being mean. It's just the people under him. And they're saying, hey, your, your people is stop depriving us to be able to serve you well. And then they discover what? Pharaoh himself was the exact one that really ordered no straws and called them lazy and everything else. So how do you think they feel? They felt very discouraged. So in verses 19 to 21, when they met Moses and Aaron, do you think they were very happy with Moses and Aaron? What do you guys think? No, they were really upset because they saw Moses and Aaron is the one that gave them all this source of problem to talk about freedom, to call, say, to leave and everything else. And now being slaves, everything is even more miserable. Okay? And this also leaves who? The people are discouraged and who else is discouraged? Look at verse 22 to 23. 
Look with me in verses 22 to 23. The other person that's discouraged is actually Moses, okay? Verses 23 and uh, 22 and 23. He's so discouraged, but unlike the people, you know the people when they got discouraged, right away they went to Mo, uh, Pharaoh. But you know what? Moses did something right when he's discouraged. He went and talked to God first before he talked to anybody else. By the way, that should be us, right? When we have problems, the very first one we should go to should be what? God. And then when you get to Exodus 6, Exodus 6 verses 1 onward, this whole chapter, this is God speaking to encourage Moses to do the work. Even when the people are against them, the very people he's trying to help, even when Pharaoh and all his Egyptian military and political power and royalty is against him, even when all these things, God gives him all these promises. Okay, I'm not going to preach the whole book of Exodus or, or chapter 6. But then if you look here in this section where we're at, it was the part that for me, when I first read it, stick out like a sword down because everything else before verse 13 is like, yeah, I could be so encouraged. There's God makes seven promises of what he will do. He reminds him of what God is like in the past. All these things. But then it's kind of weird. Why would God stick in the middle of all this a genealogy? Okay. In fact, actually, the genealogy is not just information down. Okay. Because if you look at verses 13, and also the, uh, the first verse for our section today, verse 13, and the last verse in verse 27. Did you notice both these passages, beginning and the end, is kind of like the book ends, like the beginning and the end, where it says what? shows that it mentioned about Moses have the task to bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt. Why is this important? I think this is important because it's trying to say that the genealogy is still relevant for somehow to motivate who? Moses. To do the job, even when it's difficult. So what I'm suggesting is actually there's something in the genealogy that we need to read and pay attention to that should encourage and motivate uh, Moses and also even for us. When things are difficult, when the whole world seems to go against you, where even God's people seem to be going against you and are going against you, should you stop and compromise? Should you stop being obedient to God? No, you continue to serve God and obey Him. Because when you look at a bigger level, more closer with your own family history, there are five motivations that we mentioned to obey, to motivate us to obey. Okay, a little bit about this genealogy. This genealogy is not complete because it only focuses on three tribes of Israel. You guys know how many tribes of Israel there are? Twelve, right? Nancy says twelve. So three out of twelve. In fact, it's also kind of disproportional, okay? Because those three tribes is the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Simeon, and the tribe of Levi. Verses 14 is d- dedicated to the tribe of Reuben. Okay? And then the tribe of Levi, uh, Simeon, which verse is that? Verse 15, okay? And when you think about it, it, everything in verses 16 onward is the tribe of Levi. So it's out of proportion. In fact, if you look at Reuben and Simeon in verses 14 and 15, it's interesting when you look at the genealogy, it only goes from the, fa- the fa- founder of the tribe, then to the next generation, the second generation, to his, their, his, their immediate sons. And that's it. It stops there. But when you look in verses 16 onwards, it's going to focus on Levi. It's not going to be only just his immediate son of the tribe of Levi or the founder, the father, right? Levi. It's going to go for six generations. How many generations? Six generations, okay? And I think when you look at these six generations, it's not meant to be a complete um, genealogy for uh, academic purposes. There's other places in the Bible where it's more complete, right? Like First and Second Chronicles, Genesis, right? The purpose of this is actually to actually to encourage Moses 
and also the readers for us that, you know, when things are difficult, when you look at God and your family history, there are motivations for you to still obey God. So let's look at the first one. The first one is be motivated to obey God because God works through quirky families. Okay? Be motivated to obey God because God works through quirky family. And I see this based upon verse 21. How many of us, you guys have this sometimes? You read the Bible and you think, wow, those guys are so amazing. Man, I wish we could be like them, but we're not. Those guys are amazing and they're just a different class and a different level. And anyone ever read that? And sometimes it could be, it feels discouraged where we think those guys have it so, um, so much easier to follow God or, or maybe they're so amazing. Maybe it's not easy to follow God, but we think they're so amazing. They're not like us and that's it. And sometimes if you think too much like that, it could also discourage us from what? Obeying God. Because we think obedience, radical obedience is only for those who are super Christians instead of us. But when you look at this uh, genealogy, you discover that, you know what, I actually think Moses' family, because Moses, by the way, is from the tribe of Levite. He actually comes from a family that could, in some sense, be very quirky. And when it's quirky, that also reminds, hey, this is just like us. Because what? Every family and our relatives and descendants could be kind of quirky, true or not. Who here has any family member that's quirky? If we don't raise your hand, you might be the one that's quirky in your family, okay? The one that family gathering, everyone else thinks, like, okay, you're the awkward strange one, okay? Because every family does have this, okay? You know, I actually think when you look at the names, there's indication that Moses' family is genealogy. They're ordinary people that is also quirky, okay? Look at verse 21. Verses 21, if you guys could look at verses 21, okay? Um, Exodus 6, 21 says this, And the son of Ishar... Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. I'm bringing this up to say when you look at the meaning of these names, I think there's a sense where their father, this guy named Ishar, might actually be kind of quirky because the meaning of these names are not necessarily very flattering. Okay? Are not necessarily very flattering. Okay? Um, because people sometimes like to give their kids, what, pretty cool names because they're hopeful for their future, and, and they want their kids to be something, okay? When I look at this, I ask the question, what does the name Korah means? What does the name Korah means, okay? You guys know what it means? If you were to Google it on Google.com, Korah actually means baldness, according to Google, or one of my Bible commentaries says, one who is bald, one who has no what? Hair, Hair okay? Um, who here would like to name your son <laughs> bald, right? Um, that's kind of quirky to name your, I mean, what kind of person names their son like this? But it also shows these people are not like, um, cause I think sometimes when we watch movies, when we watch cartoons of Exodus, we picture these guys as like really strong. By the way, have you guys noticed in all the movies for the story of Exodus, Moses looks really like young or very strong. I, I know the old school, Charles Heston, he, he, he gets older. I remember as a kid, I was like, wow, when you meet God, you get older or what? Like just gray hair. But he's still very strong. I mean, he does not look like an 80-year-old man, right? He looks like a, he looks like Charles Heston, but with just fake beard. I don't know if you guys ever feel this, right? It was almost like, wait, does Moses still have a six-pack when he's 80 years old, right? But the reality is, these were people that were ordinary. In fact, this guy was even bald, right? He was even bald, Korah, okay? In fact, if you look, one of his brothers' name is Nepheg, okay? Nepheg, okay? You guys know what that name means? It actually means clumsy, okay? It actually means clumsy. How many of you guys would name your kids or your son clumsy? Okay? This is going to go into a little bit of my history. 
um, of my own personal life. For eighth grade school yearbook, you know how people vote for different things? For like the one most likely success, the, I don't know, um, what do they vote for? The most funniest, right? Well, when I was in eighth grade for school years, yearbook at Repetto, they had a category, most clumsy. And I got voted in as the one that's most clumsy. And I was thinking, man, this is really, really bad, right? And then, you know, I remember like the sc- person, the kid that was doing it for the school newspaper or the school um, yearbook was saying, hey, congratulations, you got voted in by an overwhelming number as the most clumsiest. And I was thinking, gee, thanks, right? So I look at the eighth grade yearbook and, you know, I'm all awkward with that picture. And I'm thinking, man, you know what's worse than that, that dies a little inside, worse than a yearbook, is to have your own father name you what? Clumsy, okay? By the way, um, Google suggests the name means weak. Okay, I think clumsy probably fits more. But could you imagine if the name implies weakness? That's not very nice to name your son weak, right? I mean, this is like when you look at it, it's almost like, man, this is worse than our typical Chinese family, right? Like, wow, this is what are you doing with a kid's name? Like, with all of this, right? Um, You know, I I say that, you know, I'm I'm not being racist, whatever. But I just remember when my dad grew up, he was orphaned. His name... All I heard when I was visiting my dad as a kid was, they are saying Achen, right? Which is like, what, sadness and grief or whatever, um, and, and all that thing, suffering and stuff like that, okay? But here, these names shows these people are very ordinary, okay? They're very mortal and filled with quirkiness like you and I. What's the motivation of this? Is remember, God works through families. You know, God didn't pick the tribe of Levi because they were perfect. They were ubermen. Okay? No, God picked them because what? Because it's surely of God's grace and God is working through them. And if there's a motivation for all of us, all of us realize, you guys realize that we all have quirks, true or not. Mm-hmm. We all have quirks. And yet God still works through us, even with our quirks. So I think we need to see this and see this as a motivation, okay? It was not as if we were so awesome. God needs us in His team no matter what, right? But no, the reality is this God picks those who are least qualified, and God transforms them often, right? Uh, most of the time, right? It's not because there's something amazing about us, but God does it out of His love, out of His grace, and His mercy. So be motivated to obey God, because what God worked through what? Our quirkiness, okay? Even when we come from a quirky family, even if we ourselves are quirky, Okay? So I think we need to remember that, that God works even through our weakness. We perhaps hear this, but the genealogy reminds us in a very tangible way, okay? So Moses, in the middle of all this thing about commanding, where it says he, he needs to bring the people out, he's commanded to bring people, and later said, this is the same Moses that brought people out. Remember, God is using through this, through someone who comes from a line of people that are very ordinary, more like us and our family, more than we even realize or even appreciate, okay? With all warts and all, okay? So that's point number one. Let's go to point number two. Point number two is this. Be motivated to obey God from past family members' remembrance of God, okay? And perhaps in our past, you've seen God, perhaps in our family, have members that people that remember God, and left a legacy with even the way they named their kids, okay? Now, I know some of us might be first-generation Christian, and you say, well, Jimmy, this doesn't apply for me. But I also think that's not so. You might be the first, and Lord willing, there is a second generation of those that love God. And what you do, and even what you name your kid, is a tangible way 
of, of being a family member way of remembrance of God that's passed down to the next descendant as a spiritual legacy of sort. Okay? When I look in this genealogy, I notice that there are names. There are names that are mentioned that mentions the name, the meaning of it mentioned about God. Now, I know the other ones was kind of funny, right? Nepheg means clumsy or weak one, clum, uh, and bald one, right? With Korah, okay? But there's also some of the other descendants were also names that have spiritual significance in the meaning of their names, okay? Um, some of the names, for instance, if you look with me real quick in verses 15, it mentioned the sons of Simeon were these, right? Jamil, Jamin, Ohad, and Jachin, Zohar and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman, okay? You know, going back to even uh, earlier, I think it was Margaret's observation about how there's mention of woman here, okay? Some of it shows, actually, I actually think by this point and even early on, um, the Hebrews were also very ethnically mixed already, okay? I actually think, for instance, Joseph's kid, you know, uh, uh, you know the one that helped save all of Israel and also his family during the famine, right? With the dreams and everything else. He married, don't forget, he married an Egyptian woman, which means his kid would have already been mixed already, even within the second generation of the tribes, of the 12 tribes, okay? But here it says Shaul was the son of a Canaanite woman. I actually think with the Jews, they've always been already mixed with others. What makes them ultimately Jewish is them loving God, okay? Loving God is a spiritual dimension, Okay, and not just only ethnic and genealogical and biological. Okay, but here it says this, and you know what the name Shaul means? Though she, the mom might be a Canaanite woman, yet nevertheless, both mom and dad named their kids what? Shaul, which means prayers answered. Okay, so that's a family member who's showing here because of their parents, there's a remembrance of God. Okay, uh, a remembrance of God. So prayers answered. Okay. Prayers answered. Look with me at another name. And there's another name also as well that is mentioned. Um, Eleazar. Okay. Eleazar is another name that is mentioned um, in verses, in uh, verse, oh, sorry, verses Eleazar. If you look at verses 23, okay. It says, Aaron married Elishabah, the daughter of Amminadab, the sister of Nashon. And she bore Nabab in Abdihu, Abihu and Eleazar. Do you guys see that? What does Eleazar mean? It actually is a spiritual meaning of the name, okay? Eleazar means God has helped, okay? Or God has aided in the commentary that I read, okay? There's another name, okay? There's another name. If you look at verse 21, there's a name, El, Elzaphan, okay? Elzaphan. It actually means God has treasured, okay? God has treasured. Again, there's memory of God. And, and theology, even with their names, that is mentioned, okay? Now, here's another name that is mentioned. This one is a uh, woman, okay? If you look at verses 20, verses 20 says this, Now, Aram married his father's sister, Jehokabed, okay? Jehokabed actually means the chief, uh, actually means God's glory, okay? So, the parents name their daughter, what God's glory, okay? Name God's glory. I bring this up as to say with all these names, with this meaning that we've seen, prayers answered, God has helped, God has treasured, and even with the woman's name of God's glory, this shows that there is a legacy and genealogy of this being passed on, right? I think of even, for instance, um, how some have their 
name their kids biblical names to have biblical meanings so that the kids um, you know at least through even with their name it's passed on the legacy to remember God okay um, even like our daughters we named them Rebecca Abigail Hannah um, just based upon biblical characters and names with that legacy being passed on now I realize some of us are first generation Christians okay so but be motivated not just only in the past if you have a past where your mom and dad are believers or one of your parents praise God but if you don't you could be the first one as a pioneer that God is working. And let that be a motivation that you not just only name your kids biblical names, right? Or, or, but you also want to pass on more than this, an actual remembrance of God with the legacy of your life of obedience to God. Let this be a motivation. Again, let me say this real quick. Our primary motivation to obey God is always should be because of God's grace. But a sec- we could also have secondary. And Scripture talks about, for instance, fear of God, fear of punishment, right? Uh, we don't want to take away from that. That should not pr- be pr- your primary motivation to obey God. Those could be even warnings. But let it be your motivation primary is obedience to God because of His grace, because of His love. Amen? But also, sometimes another lesser motivation is also be obedient, desire to obey God, just so that your family members will remember God and you want them to know God you know um, I want my kids I tell them I ask them from time to time what is the number one thing you guys know that Dada wants from you with your life you know we talk about this from time to time I think we can never stop talking about it enough Um, is this you know I ask them and they say we know that you want us to go to heaven right now are other things important yes school right Uh, academics right are they how their behavior and everything else but we do talk to them. We want to treat them as little adults. Even right now, talking to them one-on-one and also as a group. Like saying, hey, you know what's my number one desire for you? Is it to go to UC something? So you see something? No. It's to, for you to know Jesus Christ. Okay? As Lord and Savior. So even this, be motivated to obey God from past family members' remembrance of God. And if you're the first in your household, um, in your relatives, in a long time, the first one to trust in God then let it be that you would also be the first one to lay this foundation. Okay, so be motivated to obey God, knowing that this is an important impact that you lay for the future ahead of you, and be encouraged with even the example if there is any of those before you. Okay, so that's the second motivation. We now go to the third motivation. Okay, the third motivation is be motivated to obey God with families privileged to serve God. With families privileged to serve God. I see this taught in verses 16 to 19, okay? Verses 16 and 19 is where we anchor our third point. Now, when you read verses 16 and 19, you might say, Hey, Jimmy, I don't see here it says family or serve God and it's a privilege. But I actually think if you look at these names, if you know the family history of these names, you will realize these family names are actually very important sub-tribal groups that were involved as priests in involvement with the temple and before this was the tabernacle. Before there was a permanent temple that David built for, for a long time period, for hundreds of years, the Jews carried out a tent. Because remember, they're wandering in the desert wilderness for 40 years. And when they went to the promised land, it was also slowly conquered. So it was as a tent um, where God's glory would descend and there'll be the tabernacle inside, all that. Okay, So you guys remember all that? Now, who carried all those things? It was just ordinary folks? No, God says it's a tribe of Levites because they're from the tribe of Levites. They should be priests. Okay? So be motivated to obey God 
with the family's privilege to serve God because God has given Levite, this tribe, a special role with his family to serve God as priests. And is that a privileged role? Yes. By the way, never think responsibility and, and privilege is somehow mutually exclusive. It could also be both. And that's the same thing when we serve God. Is it a big responsibility? Are there certain things that comes with a big responsibility? Yes, there are. But with that big responsibility, also realize it is a great what? Privilege also as well. Okay? So verses 16 and 19, I actually think this teaches this. If you look with me real quick in verses 16, it says, and by the way, verse 16 is the beginning of looking at the uh, Levites. Okay? I know we're hopping around everywhere, but verses 16, it begins with the genealogy of Levites. Levi. Right? Notice it says, these are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generation. Gershom, Kohath, and Merai, okay? And the length of Levi's day was 137 years. How many sons, immediate sons, did it mention here that Levi has? How many in verses 16? His immediate son? There are what? Anyone want to unmute and answer? In verses 16, there are? Do I need to unmute people or you guys okay? There are three. Okay, thank you. Three, okay? Gershon. Kohath and Merai, okay? And then if you look at verse 17, 18, and 19, each one of these three sons is also further mentioned about their kids, who they were, right? For instance, verse 17, the son of Gershom is Libni, okay? And Shema, and it goes on according to their family. And the same thing with Kohath in verse 18, the second son, and the third son, Merai, okay? I'm not going to repeat all those, but you see that, okay? Now, why is that important, looking at all of these? I think for the Jews, when they saw these names, they were right away... Because they know of things later on that's written. That these are their names with each one of the sons of Levi. They each one have different roles in terms of transporting the um, elements of the tabernacle. And later on, even also in the temple. Okay, For instance, when you look at Gershon, the first son, um, this is what they were responsible for. So if you guys could turn roof. So you see the name, right? The first son is Gershon in verse 16. That's also mentioned in verse 17. Now turn with me real quick to Numbers 3. 25 to 26. So I could catch my breath. Oscar, would you be able to read for us numbers? So if you're in Exodus, Leviticus is the next book. Uh, next book over is numbers. Um, numbers chapter 3, verse 25 to 26. Oscar, would you be able to read when you can? Numbers 3, 25 to 26. At the tent of meeting... The Gershonites were responsible for the care of the tabernacle and tent, its coverings, the curtain at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the curtains of the courtyard, the curtain to the entrance of the courtyard surrounding the tabernacle and altar, and the ropes, and everything related to their use. Thank you so much. They're carrying everything that really involved like the outside, right? Or the things that are like the uh, covering that is like the um, like the cloth walls for the tabernacle. Okay, so is that a big responsibility? Yes, but it's also a great privilege. It was also would have been seen as a great privilege to serve God. Okay, seeing these names remind me of that. Okay, also as well, uh, remember how the other son is Kohath. Kohath. So still stay with me in Numbers. Okay, still stay with me in Numbers. Uh, for Kohath, what was his? Descendants row. Look with me in Numbers three thirty-one. Okay, if you look further down in thirty-one, um, Sophie, would you be able to read verse thirty-one for us, if possible? 
Did you say number 321? Uh, numbers 331, sorry. 31. 31, okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Okay. Okay. One more page. Oh, okay. Uh, number, three, number 331. They were responsible for the care of the ark, the table, the lampstand, the altars, the articles of the sanctuary used in ministry, the curtain, and everything related to their use. Yeah, thank you for reading that. Notice Kohath's son, and you notice this Kohath because it's verse 30 says the Kohite families. Okay, um, we're mentioning that they have a role of carrying out the things that was inside, including also the inside screen, right? Inside wall, so to speak, okay? And also the utensils, okay? So please don't leave numbers yet. We've seen the second son. Let's also look at the third son. Remember the third son was the guy's name is Merai, okay? What is his descendants' role? If you look at verses 36 and 37, um, 36 and 37, Chris, would you be able to read that for me? 36 and 37 in Numbers 3. Still same chapter. Yep. Uh, 36 and 37. The Merarites were appointed to take care of the frames of the tabernacle, its crossbars, posts, bases, all its equipment, and everything related to their use as well as the posts of the surrounding courtyard with their bases, tent pegs, and ropes. Thank you so much for reading this. Notice again their role um, with this is they would have carried other elements, right? It's almost like the odd part and also the pillars of the own. So all these different parts. Notice each one has his role. And you know what I think is significant of this? When Moses, when this genealogy is, was suddenly put in here, I think the genealogy is put in there to remind us, even to read the lowest point, of Israel's history. Israel would have read, if you go back with me to Exodus chapter um, 6, right? If you go back with me, remember when you read this name in verses 16, they would have right away think of these names as, oh, they're the ones of the temple and the tabernacle because they've been doing it for thousands of years, okay? Thousands of years. And yet when we read this, have you realized that none of these things would have been a role and a privilege for Moses' family, and the Levites, if Moses did not was obedient to helping and leading the people by God's grace out of what? Exodus, out of Egypt, okay? So this shows that in terms of it's a privilege for Moses to serve, but also as well to continue that legacy or the privilege to serve. Sometimes it involves, first, we have to obey. But nevertheless, we see if there's a motivation, be motivated to obey God with a family privilege to serve God. With a family privilege to serve God. Not that I want to always give military analogy, but I always think military is it sometimes has good spiritual analogy. Is this? I think um, in the military world, sometimes the most dangerous job is also seen as also privilege. True or not? Um, you guys probably I don't know if you guys heard the news. Like ISIS was like the commander, like yesterday was taken out by U.S. like special operation forces. Now you you know those is like the same thing like the Bin Laden raid. If you guys heard in Syria. Now, those guys that went in, do you guys think those guys are, is like anybody, they just put anybody in there? Or do you think they were really highly selected? What do you guys think? Um, it would have been very highly selected, right? Um, guys that have been in, what, 10 to 15 years in, that are in the prime of the game, right? It brings up to say is this, it's dangerous, yes, it's a big, huge responsibility, but it's also a privilege. And I think same thing when we serve God, okay? It is a great responsibility with grave consequences, 
when we fail, but also it is a great privilege. So we need to be motivated, and we see this reminder from the genealogy of the Levites, okay? Also, fourth point, be motivated to obey God with warning of family members who rebelled against God. Now, this part gets a little bit negative, but it is biblical. We need to be warned also as well that rebellion against God, when we're not serving Him, when we're too busy rebelling, we're obviously too busy to serve Him. When we're so busy serving Him, we don't have, hopefully, room to rebel against Him. But nevertheless, as point four, we also need to be motivated with more of a negative warning. If all those three points earlier was the carrot, this is the stick that we need to remember. That when you look at this genealogy, is what Nancy pointed out earlier. Nancy, you know, uh, Chan pointed out that not all these genealogy, every name is somehow glorious, uh, glorifying God with their action. We also see this genealogy a warning of what it means to disobey God. And again, remember, situated in Exodus 6 is Moses feeling like so discouraged. He feels like, man, God, I don't even want to obey. And all these things genealogy is giving is to remind, is to encourage, and also a severe warning. Because when you look at some of these names, some of these names are people that did not obey God and suffer severe consequences. Okay, suffer severe consequences. First look with me in verses 21. Notice this says in verses uh, 21, All the sons of Ejar are these, Korah, Nephag, and Zikri. We mentioned Korah earlier, that his, name, his dad, for whatever reason, named him baldness. But most people remember Korah for what? His rebellion against God. Okay? If you turn with me, we're not going to read the whole thing. Turn with me in number 16. Okay? I think a lot of us perhaps refer, remember the movies, um, the Charles Heston Ten Commandments, right? Or maybe the Disney version. I've never seen the Disney version, right? But Korah's rebellion is in chapter 6, where he's, you know, there's all kinds of sin and everything else, and there's what? Um, celebrating uh, adult uh, idolatry and all these things, what was going on, okay? And guess what? Korah is actually part of the same family group as Moses, okay? Korah here, <coughs> um, here is mentioned as rebellion. And was there severe consequences? Yes, there was, okay? So I'm bringing this chapter. We're not going to go through the whole thing. It's just to show the, also the severe warning as a motivation for us to say, hey, we don't want to be in rebellion against God, right? We don't want to be in rebellion. And let that be also saying, okay, if we don't want to have grace motivators to obey, the severe warning at least put in perspective the consequences of rebellion and sinning against God. Let's also look at another one. Turn back with me to um, Exodus. Uh, verse 23. Now, this is Aaron. This is Aaron, which is the brother of Moses, which is Moses and Aaron. Remember, he's the um, mouthpiece, so to speak, for Moses. What's the name of his first two sons? In verse 23, Exodus 6, 23. What is the name of his first two sons? <coughs> What's the name of his first two sons? Anyone want to unmute? <coughs> he has more than two sons, but just the first two. Yeah, Nabdab and Abihu, okay? Have you guys seen this name anywhere else before? Perhaps it's one of the more well-known Bible stories in the first five books. They were the ones that, what, when they went to the temple, they decided to make strange fires. Do you guys remember this? Um, put your pinky or bookmark or thumb in Exodus 6 and turn with me real quick to Numbers chapter 10, okay? 
Uh, num- uh, correction, Leviticus chapter 10. So if you're in Exodus, the next book over is Leviticus 10. Again, we're not going to read the whole thing, but at least I just want to point this out to you. Verses 1, it says, Now, again, Leviticus 10, 1. Now, Nabdab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans, and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it, and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. Okay? So do you see here? They decide to disobey God in the way that God has certain rules of how worship is to be done. And they decide, okay, let's be creative. Now, do you think there is a place to be creative, but within certain parameters? Okay? Um, and here you see the consequences is verse 2. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses, verse 3, said to Aaron, It is not is what the Lord spoke in saying, it is what the Lord spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy, and by all people I will be honored. So Aaron therefore kept silent. This is pretty sad. okay? But it also shows that you don't take God as, He's not a toy or play device. okay? So if we could go back real quick with me to um, Leviticus. right? This is a serious warning. that The things of God, yeah, we celebrate. Yeah, sure, we can have jokes. and we, The jokes I think the best is self-depreciating humor. I don't really like making jokes, making fun of what people that's listening to God's word preaching. I don't think that's very kind. It could be counterproductive. But here, nevertheless, with God, we should never, what, treat Him lightly. Does that make sense? So here we see, yet again, reinforcing, Velcroing our fourth point, be motivated to obey God, with warning of family members who rebelled against God. But let's also look at another one, okay? Let's still look, still at one more. Look at verses 20. Um, Nancy Chan highlighted this point earlier Or I think it was Chris mm-hmm. Actually it was Chris In verse 20 it says this Now Aram married his father's sister Joachabed And she bore him Aaron and Moses And the length of Aram's day was 137 So Aram married his father's sister Which actually goes against biblical law Okay, Leviticus 18.12 <coughs> prohibits this So if you guys could just turn uh, right over real quick to the next book earlier, to Leviticus 18.12. It says, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your father's sister. She is your, what, father's blood relative. So, for the Jewish rabbis reading this, they saw that it was really, what, scandalous, right? In terms of Moses. But I think also, even when we talk about the sins, listen, even as we talk about the sins, um, that we need motivated to obey God with warning of family members who rebelled against God, I also think this shows that even if our family is messed up, guess what? God is gracious. Because this man and this woman that we mentioned about the improper relations, at least in terms of biblical law, still, that's what? That is who? That is Moses and Aaron's parents, okay? That's Moses' father and mother. And yet God's still gracious, right? Even with these sins to still use people from what really messed up backgrounds. So even as we see point number four, about being motivated to obey God with warning a family member who rebelled against God, we also see that no one is beyond, no one's family history is beyond God's grace. Okay? No fa- and that should also be motivation for us to continue to love Him and obey Him. Okay? To continue to love and obey Him. Let's go to point number five, which is our last final point, is be motivated to obey God from the zeal for God from other family members. Be motivated to obey God from the zeal for God from other family members. Look with me in verse 25. It says, Now Aaron's son Eleazar married one of the daughters of Putuil, 
and she bore him Phinehas. These are the heads of the father's household of the Levites, according to their families. Okay, I think very likely um, Eleazar, Aaron's son, married someone that was um, uh, from Africa. Because the name Phinehas often refers to Nubians or, or those that were in interior Africa that were darker skinned. Okay? Again, this goes back to my theme that I think even the tribes of Israel was a lot more diverse in terms of skin color than perhaps most of us realize when we watch you know, Disney movies or, or old 1950s movies. Okay? But Phinehas or Phineas is the other way I call it. Oh, so the reason why I call it Phinehas is because when I was in overseas seeing Andrew, there was one little boy named that. And Andrew would always call him say, no, you call him Phineas. But everyone was like saying Phineas. So whatever reason, because I you know, stayed over at his house, I started always using Phineas, okay? Phineas, okay? What is he famous for? He's actually, he has a lot of zeal for God's honor, okay? I'm not going to go all the details, but turn with me real quick to Numbers 25. And this part might actually be shocking for us. But the shocking is not always all bad because we cannot domesticate God or put Him in a box, Phineas was famous for what? For actually having zeal for God so much that when someone is going to go to the tabernacle, to the place where God is at, and defiled it, he, would, he actually killed the man and the woman. Again, it blows our mind, but also we cannot domesticate the Bible. In fact, this act was seen by God as something that is so... Um, he does so much respect with God that God lifts him up. And in fact, actually... While this part in um, Numbers 25, he's young. Later on, you'll see even the book of Judges and elsewhere. He continuously served God. And just before you think like God just likes a violent man, in other parts in Scripture, he also mediates between guys that are warring tribes and say, hey, we can make peace, okay? So in other words, what drives him is passion and zeal for God, okay? Look with me in Numbers chapter 25, verses 7 and 13. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he arose from the midst of the congregation and took a spear in his hand, and he went after the man of Israel into the tent and pierced him, both of them, through the man of Israel and the woman, through the body. So the plague of the son of Israel was checked. Okay. So what was going on earlier is, um, in verses 6, one of the sons of Israel came and brought his relative, a maniac woman, inside of God. And, you know, they were doing things that were inappropriate. Okay. And at the doorway of the tent of meeting. Could you imagine this? You're doing inappropriate things right in front of the church door. Okay, and what does Phineas do? He goes and he basically wipes them out. And by the way, look at verses nine. Those who died by the plague was twenty-four thousand. This is the amount of disrespect. God is not to be played. And before you think, okay, God is so mean. Remember how much God has been so merciful. God has brought them out of Egypt. God has spared all the firstborn. When all the firstborn was killed, He spared them. And yet they would go ahead and disrespect God in the most heinous and most what worse of ways. Okay, so Phineas is described. So don't picture Phineas as just a violent man. Again, like I said, other, other parts of scripture, if you just do a BibleGateway.com, look at his name, he also mediated between people that were not getting along to say, hey, we could solve this. He is into conflict resolution. But when it comes to the honor of God, there's a place to what? To say, hey, this is wrong. And this is very wrong. Okay, so I think that's something to remember here. Okay, so be motivated to obey God from the zeal of God for other family members. I often respected my younger sisters, especially when they're younger, their zeal for God. Okay, But you might say, Jimmy, I don't see this in any of my family members. I'm the first one as a Christian. But remember also in the genealogy, Phineas came what? 
later on. He was not the same generation as Moses before. But sometimes when we serve God, it's also be motivated that perhaps you lay the foundation for a future family member would even be, what, zealous for God, okay? Um, so I think that's important to see. All this thing is where I think it is biblical, where I think I do have grounds to say, don't just only look at this in your past to motivate you to obey, but some of these things is also saying, Lord God, let me be obedient so these six things would be true. And let that be also your secondary motivation. In the end, your ultimate motivation should be what? Should be God's grace. We deserve death, do we not? Because of our sins. And even reading a book like Numbers 25, this chapter where it's so sobering, with all of Israel's sin, right? I mean, look at the plague. Those who died were 24. And that was checked. If it wasn't, it would have consumed all of Israel. If it was not for Phineas. It shows this thing that... Because of sin, someone needs to die. That's foundation to the gospel. But here comes the good news. Because someone has to die for their sin, someone came and had to die for our sins as a substitute. Who died in our place as a substitute? It's none other than Jesus Christ who came. When we look at Leviticus, correction, when we look at Exodus 6, remember the Levites are supposed to be priests for the people. But you see they are far from being perfect. Moses whined, right? You know, his parents have kind of crazy sins, scandalous sins. That's even mentioned, right? You see people rebellion, everything else. They're far from being perfect priests. But there is one high priest that is perfect. Who is that? That is Jesus Christ. Hebrews says he's a perfect high priest who came and he died for us. So even if you look at your whole line and says, none of this thing is even true of anything of my family. I hope this is true. But if there's a greater motivation than just hoping the future, this is true. What if you don't have kids, right? Ever. Still, it is still your powerful motivation when we look at this. When you see the fallenness of the Levites from this clan and tribe of priests. Christ is the greatest high priest who died for you, right? I love how Christ is described both as a priest and as a lamb, right? Priests usually slaughter lamb, but instead of slaughtering someone else, he himself is slaughtered to save us from our sin. Will that motivate us to say to trust in him to save us, but also motivate us as the most powerful motivation to obey and listen even when it's difficult?